People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio. I was lucky enough recently to see the Tennessee Williams play The Glass Menagerie, which is on here at the arena at the Artscape, in a production by Fred Abramser and Marcel Mayer. And if you know Tennessee Williams, you'll know that this is one of his famous plays and that it is really quite something to sit through. What is interesting is that for this particular production, music has been especially composed, and it's been composed for solo cello. The cellist Natasha Otero plays music written by Jaco Chrysal, a Cape Town-based musician and theatre maker. He's been involved in numerous theatre productions since 2008, and also quite a variety, working as music director, pianist, guitarist, production designer. He regularly performs with the acoustic duo called Mac and Miller. And he produced a production of the Broadway show Rent at the Andre Huguenet Theatre in Bloemfontein. He's also a teacher and lecturer in systematic music analysis and oral training. We'll get to that in a moment. Yako, welcome to People of Note. Thank you so much. Thank you. I would just like to know, having heard and seen the play now and heard that it's quite a concept, how did the concept come up of having a solo cello and you being asked to write the music? Tell me the background. Yes, well, in the script, they do specify that they want music. And Tennessee Williams was quite particular about where he actually wanted music to be played. So I think his conception always included music. If you think about the opening monologue in the show, um, the character of Tom Wingfield mentions that uh, in memory, everything happens to music, which and then he refers explicitly to the musician. The choice of cello came from Fred. In the script, they refer to a fiddle, uh, which is probably what Tennessee Williams had in mind originally. Fred felt that the cello had a little bit more of the gravitas, maybe the, you know, the lower register. Mm. Also, it adds to the darkness to of the, the play, doesn't exactly, it? Exactly, it does. Orally. It does, yes. So, so that's why Fred decided he wants to go with cello. And um, I love the instrument, so I was only too happy to, to oblige and write and, for and it. And what did you think when you were asked? Did you think, goodness, where do I start? Did you know the play, for example? Uh, I did not. I knew the name, uh, but I had very little idea of what it was about. I'm a little bit uninformed sometimes <laughs> with the details of, of drama. I'm much more of a musical theatre person. Yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. So what did you do? Did you have to study this, the script? Uh, yes, that's, that's, that's usually where it starts. Um, I read the script through about four times at least four or five times and each time um, the first time typically I just read it to get a general sense of it and then from the second time I would start to make more notes and write in ideas of where I think there would be music and possible themes um, just very free not editing too much and then maybe after the third and the fourth reading I actually go to the manuscript paper and start sketching ideas very quickly I'm not thinking about it too much, just a, just a kind of first reaction. To get it down sort of thing, down yeah, on paper. Yes, exactly. Just just to have a starting point. You know, you usually, they, there's not really a starting point until you actually just get going. Okay. <laughs> That's the most difficult part of composition. Exactly. <laughs> like writer's block, this <laughs> would apply to a composer as well. Yes, yeah. So as you were reading, could you sort of, I have a naive question, could you sort of hear the cello in your head, what you wanted it to do? Yeah, well, I, I had the idea of uh, that it should probably be in a quite a low register. So yeah. you kind of start there, and you and you hum a little bit, and uh, as you as you're reading, you you hum away. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> okay. and then you go to the, the you write it down, and you hear it on the piano, and it's a complex back and forth between. You know what struck me, Yaku, when I was listening and watching at the opening was, and this is by no means meaning to imply that you were copying anybody. But it reminded me of the atmosphere of the cello suites, the unaccompanied cello suites by Bach, which have a kind of bleakness and yet an intensity and beauty, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Do yeah. you agree that, that, that there is that sort of feel to some of the pieces? Well, d very defi definitely, definitely so. Um, I mean, I did listen to the, the part of the research process as I was reading the script. I would also spend a lot of time after reading, listening to cello music, solo cello music, just because I'm not a cellist myself. Um, 
and looking at the score, you get a sense of what cello music looks like and what's the capabilities of the instrument, what can you do and what can you get away with and these kind of things. So obviously the, the Bach cello preludes did feature very heavily in that research. And um, the timbre of the instrument and the kind of textures that you can create, whilst it's very wide in scope, you will always in some way create music that is reminiscent of other other music of course yeah. an influence it's a compliment the, the, in, to Bach. Yeah, yes <laughs> no, the greatest I, compliment. I think we are in, in 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 a culture nowadays where people all you know get a very defensive about things like that sometimes when you imply that their music but that wasn't a problem for somebody like bach even you, mm. you look at they copied willy-nilly from one another and they just took their music out of one piece and put it in another That's right. piece. They, they copied from themselves. Yeah, in it, fact. Was, it wasn't such an issue um, yeah. because music is functional. It, it's quite interesting just hearing you say this if you're not a cellist. I suppose, did you talk to cellists about, I don't know, what the bow can do, what the fingers can do, the jumps, the bowing? Um, I, unfortunately, because of the time constraints, I didn't have the time to to sit down <laughs> with a cellist and really get it. But yeah. the wonder of the modern world is with the internet and YouTube. So I could watch masterclasses given by the best cellists, uh, cello teachers, conductors talking about cello music. Um, you, you can, there's such a mass of information out there that mm -hmm. you can learn from. Um, so I had all the exposure that I wanted, um, although it is very helpful. I mean, we before we finalized the score, I did have a good a session with the cellist Natasha and you know to go through the music that I've written and then after that we changed things again um, when she suggested like this might be sound a little bit more like what you actually want you right. know no, I mean enough. I think composers really love to think that that we we always know exactly what <laughs> we want but the truth is we generally don't yeah, and it's <laughs> useful if you have a musician who sort of understands what you're about exactly, and says, and I think I can help you here. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, uh, you can't be too precious about it because you can learn a lot from these people who've been playing it their whole lives. I want to find out a little bit more about Natasha in a moment. But, um, Jakob Kriesel, what is your first piece of music to share with us? Uh, well, a piece by Benjamin Breton, who's probably one of my favorite composers, uh, a British composer, and he wrote three divertimenti for string quartet. And uh, this is the second movement, the waltz. It's a lovely little piece, just uh, easy listening.
Music there by Benjamin Britten, a waltz for string quartet played the, by the Magini Quartet. And the first choice of my guest on People of Note this week, the composer Jaco Chrysal, whose cello work is being performed as part of the Glass Menagerie, the Tennessee Williams play, which is being presented by the Abramser and Mayer production team and is on here at the arena. The cellist in the production is Natasha Otero. And, Yako, how did you discover the cellist? Did Fred Abramser do that? Or tell me a little bit about the lady who's sitting there all in her own playing. Yes. Um, well, so Fred was responsible for finding her. Uh, I'm actually quite unfamiliar with, with the whole uh, how, how he got hold. I think he contacted a friend at UCT and, and she then recommended Natasha. But Natasha's been doing a great job. She's been uh, fantastic with also helping me know what the cello can do. So oh, as you she, said, just giving you some advice, yeah. helping you to get what you want. As exactly, you said exactly, exactly. And and uh, she's been great. She's had a. I, I felt that she or feel that she has a real feel for theatre, which is rare in musicians. Mm. That she she knows what the music needs to do. Um, so it was often in the rehearsals we had together more a, a process of. Um, we're just just agreeing together at the same time about what the music needs to do and how we need to shape it, which was a lovely, lovely experience. It's interesting, isn't it, how, as you say, she's very much part of the show. It's not background music. She's not sitting backstage. She's right there with a light on her, raised up slightly. So she's integral, isn't she, to yes, the characters yes, on stage in a yes, sense. Yeah, I, I think... Um, probably the whole idea is that she's some way the inner monologue of the characters even though we get to hear most of their thoughts she underpins it with with the music and that's also the idea of the music um, that I that I wrote was to mm. try and and get some essential aspect of the character and to in some way try to capture that in, in music in a musical form because the character you're trying to capture in musical form is actually um tom wingfield isn't he the he's sort of the narrator like almost an alter ego of tennessee williams himself yes yes so of the four characters i wrote themes for three of them just because the character of the gentleman caller jim at the beginning of the play they say he's the most realistic character he's the most outside of that little claustrophobic trio yes, of characters yes. that form the core of the play. So it felt to me that I don't want to give him his own music. So I essentially wrote a theme for Tom, a theme for Amanda, and a theme for Laura. And each of them had very different characters. And, um, yeah, there, it, was, it was a wonderful process to try and capture each of their characters in some form in the Because music. isn't it interesting? I mean, it's, we are talking about a fairly remarkable play, aren't we, The Glass Menagerie? Yes, yes. Um, and the characters are so different, yet they're in this very claustrophobic environment, and Fred has set it so that, you know, with the lighting and all that, it's, it's claustrophobic even, in a sense, for the audience, and because of the arena, you're sitting very close to them, so you pick up their character quite easily. And, yeah. and so the fact that in the second act... Marcel Mayer, as the gentleman caller comes in, it's like a breath of fresh air in a sense. And there's no cello. And <laughs> not yeah. that I'm suggesting <laughs> the cello is a problem. <laughs> yeah, no, no. But if that's the effect that it creates, then it then it works. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm glad to hear that. That that's what what gets communicated. A, a definite shift in in the way the the play functions. I know, as you said earlier, you're a musician, not a not a theatre person, really. Although you've done so much theatre, but we're going to talk about you just now. Um, the m the number of times you read through this play, and with those monologues, Tennessee Williams has a very special style of writing, doesn't he? That yes. I remember talking to Marcel about. That can be tricky to learn, but once you've got it under your skin, yeah. it flows very easily. And it seems to me that you must have picked that up because of the way it flows with a cello accompaniment. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, so after I wrote down the themes and did my initial sketches, I, uh, Fred and Marcel, at that point, they were in America doing their work there. So I was kind of left on my on my own for a month. And I, I compiled all those themes, those musical ideas into a suite of, of, of five minutes or six minutes of music, uh, which was very useful because it also gives me the chance to work with the material as a composer and see what their potential are for development and what one can do with them. Uh, so I presented that suite to them. And even though that never appears in the show in that form, um, so then after that, took each of these themes and, and kind of after Fred and I pinpointed where the music goes, we then placed them 
in and and also I listened to the to the actors as they read through the script and timed the monologues and, things, and then working with that timing try to fit the music into that so there must have been some kind of cross influence there yeah with the rhythm with the of rhythm the text yes and yes. what was in your head about what you wanted to portray for that particular yeah i'm just thinking um you mentioned the word sweet just now yes is there any chance when this is finished now this play is finished is there any chance that you'll release this on a commercial cd I, or would we ever hear it again or is it going to vanish into one of your bottom drawers no, it will probably vanish into the bottom drawer oh no <laughs> well it's uh I love writing music like this because of the functionality of it. And uh, to be honest, there's not a lot of opportunity to write music like this. Unfortunately, even though I do love it, it definitely helps the writing to not think that you're creating something for the ages here, that you're just writing something that's, that you're going to use for this run. And um, maybe if if this has a life beyond this, this production or this run, the Glass Menagerie goes on tour or comes back then I would revisit it and, and write but to keep the functionality of the music first and foremost and that's why I I've always preferred to write music for plays for um, or musicals because of them it forms one part of of the whole it's part of creating a, an effect yeah yeah and um, interesting as well when you say you talk about functionality and all that it's got this um you know, sometimes people are fearful, I'm sure you know this, of so-called 21st century music. But the music is certainly accessible, hence me mentioning right at the beginning the kind of, it reminded me of the Bach cello suites, yes. um, yeah. that sense of wanting you to listen. In fact, it's a bit of a challenge, Yako, I must tell you, mm. when you're in the theater, because you need to concentrate on those dialogues that Tennessee Williams writes, and then... The cello is also very interesting, and you, <laughs> so you, <coughs> you're using all your your sensibilities, actually. Yes, yes, yeah. I generally write, prefer to write more accessible music, um, and not not as a a goal in itself, but I do think that that I interact with the text or really try to keep to the text. It it um, brings out something a little less intellectual. In, uh, not that the music's unintellectual, but let's say this 21st century music and uh, recent music, uh, because they are written uh, by composers often with a very strong sense of history and feeling like they have to add on to the great works of the past and they have to keep exploring their furthest reaches of what we can write, the music does tend to become overly intellectual without any real link to how people perceive music and enjoy music. Mm -hmm. So if you jettison that idea of that you have to write music that's intellectually um, stimulating as a goal in itself, and then you also have this framework within which you w uh, write, which is very much a framework of human emotions and the characters and how they interact with one another, you do end up with more human music. <laughs> That's beautifully put. Thank you for saying that. Now, your next piece of music, Yaku. Well, so this is leading on from our conversation. I've always been a massive fan of uh, Maurice Ravel. I've probably been always been attracted to his music because he was known as such a craftsman of writing music, almost playing a game, mm. of seeing what he can do and how he can manipulate the music to create effect, not going all out that the music is a is an expression of himself in some kind of way. So this is a lovely little piano piece, uh, and pardon my pronunciation, it's the Minuet sur le nom d'Aiden, uh, which is a little piece that he wrote, I think it was uh, some celebration of Haydn's life um, that happened, and a French publisher uh, put out these commissions for composers to write music on a little theme that was um, that they derived uh, uh, from Haydn's name, uh, I think it was five notes or so, and it's played by Vlador Perlimiter, the famous interpreter of Ravel.
music by Ravel there, piano music by Ravel. And to punish you, I'm going to ask you to say your French again, Yaku. <laughs> what was that? Minuet sur le nom d'Aiden. And the pianist Vladimir Perlmutter. Yeah. My guest is Yaku Chrysal, who wrote the music for The Glass Menagerie, the play by Tennessee Williams, which is on at the arena here at Artscape, I think till about the end of the month. And I thoroughly recommend you go and see it. It's an extraordinary afternoon or evening in the theatre with solo cello as part of the whole production, uh, music written by Yaku. Um, while it was playing, listening to the piano music there, we were discussing, weren't we, Yaku, about Ravel being a miniaturist. Yes, yeah. But being a miniaturist, he loved orchestration, but he wrote for a huge orchestra. He really scored for a vast orchestra. Yeah, yes, yeah. Um, yeah, as, as we were chatting, um, there's a contradiction in, in him, in the man, or it seems to be that he's, his natural composer instinct was for small detailed works with, with you know, very, very fine details and well-crafted. But then he, uh, if you read his biogra- uh, biographies and so on, you see that he's always almost had a greater interest in orchestration. That's why he's given us these wonderful orchestrations like um, the Mussorgsky Pictures at an Exhibition. Yes, famously. And, um, and obviously Bolero, uh, which is almost a study in orchestration mm-hmm. and in orchestral colors and how you can combine them. So there's something interesting in the man there that he, he seems to have shied away, I guess, from freewheeling creativity and like to, to latch onto something which gave him some certainty in sense of, because orchestration is very much a craft. There is some creativity involved, but it's a, it's a wonderful thing to do because the music's already written and, and you just play mm-hmm. with it in some ways. I mean, he was a great teacher as well. Famously, he taught Ray Vaughan Williams. Yeah. And when Vaughan Williams went back to England, suddenly we heard this extraordinary change yeah. in his orchestration. But the other interesting thing is Ravel wrote so much for the piano, which he then orchestrated, yes. which is probably what you're saying, is underlining what you're saying, that he took his own pieces and orchestrated them, yes. like Le Tombe du Couperin. Yes, yes. And it's, it's, I think that's probably a, an extension of that impulse of wanting to orchestrate your own works. Is, um, it's an interesting challenge. Mm-hmm. And I, from what we can gather from Ravel's life, he seems to always have enjoyed the idea of games, playing games and challenges and setting parameters for himself, which is always a big problem for composers, um, setting parameters, like especially nowadays where, uh, well, not nowadays so much anymore, but let's say that that period, let's say at the end of the 19th century to let's say the end of the 20th century, where composition became completely freewheeling, all the all the rules were jettisoned and there was or there's almost no like Stravinsky always talked about the frightening freedom like you <laughs> yes. you 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 think you 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 think you want that until you get it and and to ha- not have parameters is awful like i know personally again coming back to what i said earlier that's why i love to write for theater because the parameters are there um, when you're writing without parameters, you are just confronted with your own lack of originality and ideas <laughs> because you keep writing the same piece again and again and again. <laughs> but talking about that, Yaka, I just want to find out a bit more about you and all these things you do and why we're talking about orchestration. Are there times where you've had to do you write for orchestra? Um, I don't compose for orchestra or I haven't had the opportunity. I would love to. Um, and I have when I was studying. But as a uh, professional, I haven't had the, the chance yet. I have orchestrated a lot, though. I have arranged music for um, the Stellenbosch City Orchestra and the Bloemfontein Philharmonic. And okay. every now and again, at least uh, three or four times a year, I get good big commissions from these orchestra or orchestral ensembles. And you enjoy that, even though it's not your work. But still, you've got to create this tapestry of sound, don't yeah, you? Yeah, it's a, I love it. I, it's, uh, it's love arranging, always loved arranging um, and, and orchestrating music. So tell me a little bit about your background. Have, I mean, you're a young man. When did, you, when did the music bug bite? Uh, um, well, my music story is definitely not the normal one. I can't claim to be some kind of child prodigy or anything. I, in fact, I'm quite. Uh, I, had, I had a very cultural family, but they'd never forced us into into any kind of direction. Um, I played double bass when I was younger for a couple of years, and then eventually went uh, started playing classical guitar. From there, it kind of went off the rails when I went into the rock scene for a couple of years and oh, played did you do that? rock electric <laughs> guitar. And um, after school, didn't really have any idea what I wanted to do. So for some reason, I ended up in theater <laughs> and studied, studied a course in theater making. Um, 
and worked as a freelance theater technician for for two years after that. And during that time, I've always kept up my my music as a guitarist. And sometime during that time, the 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 bug for writing really bit, and and uh, I c mostly self self taught up till that point. Um, and then I luckily got in at the University of the Free State, and from there it just uh, took off. Uh, absolutely loved it. Because you have done a lot of things, I said at the beginning, music director, pianist, guitarist, yeah. production designer. And you also have a little group, don't you, Mac and Miller. That's yeah. your. I presume that's where you can relax and enjoy performing your own pieces with your partner. Well, it's 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 mostly arrangements. It's just a little side side gig we do um, at markets and things like that. That's always fun to take take songs that people know and um, uh, more older, you know, typically like from the eighties and the seventies and songs like that. And we rearrange them for mm -hmm. acoustic guitar and a hand percussion and things like that too. We, it's it's another in interesting experiment in arranging to take something from the eighties rock music from the eighties, which that is, everyone knows well, and it's say. it's quite a saturated sound with lots of keyboard and saxophone and guitars and bass and everything going and then to just reduce it to two instruments and uh, two voices is quite uh, it's enjoyable little little experiment. So, so what does it consist of Mac and Miller? Um, it's it's just me and my partner Zoe McLachlan and we we sing and do you sing as well? So you yes, both yeah. sing and you both play yeah, instruments? Yes, yes, yes. Zoe plays hand percussion, I play guitar, and we both sing together. She sings the lead. I'm not that much of a singer. <laughs> okay, and have you written anything for Mac and Miller? No, no, no. It's no, all covers. It's all covers. It's all covers, yeah. Gosh. Yeah, so. All right, well, let's have another piece of music. What is your next fascinating, riveting choice? <laughs> and I'm not sending you up. <laughs> well, I'm not sure what's going to come next. <laughs> well, well it's, this, is, this is quite an unknown one. It's an uh, uh, American composer called Lucas Foss, and he wrote a capriccio for cello and piano. Now, I didn't know this piece before I was commissioned with this work, and this was one of the works that I listened to as research for my work for the Glass Menagerie. In, it's in style and in, in aesthetic, it's very different to the music I ended up writing, but I just loved the music a lot. Uh, you know, I'm probably gonna never stop listening to it now that it's kind of entered my attention. <laughs>
Music there by Lucas Foss. What was that? A capriccio, Jaco? Yes, capriccio for cello and piano. And as you said, something that you find very inspiring helped you with music for the glass menagerie. Yes, yes. Jaco Chrysler is my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio, and he is the composer of the cello music played by Natasha Otero in the production of the glass menagerie, which is on here at the Artscape Arena. And it gives an extra reason for you to go along and see it, to listen to this remarkable cello music, Jaco. But... One of the other things I wanted to ask you, again at the beginning I said you're a teacher and lecturer and you have this very fancy subject, systematic music analysis and oral training. You lectured at the Free State University for a while. 
What does that mean, actually? Uh, it's music theory. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, well, it's uh, it's well. That's what I what what I lectured at the University of the Free State in, um, and it has kind of followed me now into my current teaching. Um, so it's perspectives of of looking, uh, you know, looking at music and. Um, you know, the relationship with theory and, and, and music is always a complicated one, especially as a composer. You don't know where the one ends and the one other starts. It's not just inspiration, as any composer will, will tell you. It, that's a, it's a romanticized idea of it, that you just sit down and you, the music just flows from you. Sometimes something like that happens, but it's not, it's very, it's not part of the job. Mm -hmm. Um, so uh, I, I studied music theory quite extensively. I've always found it fascinating and various perspectives of looking at pieces of music and what that then illuminates. Um, but the piece of music as it stands there is very much something on its own that has its own rules. And even the composer, they hardly, though they very seldomly are completely in control of what it is. Sometimes when the composer has the most idea of what they wrote, it's probably not that great <laughs> really? <laughs> because it's too <laughs> conscious. Uh, not that consciousness is a, is a, is a bad thing, but it, it's defined too much. And I think that's in all forms of art nowadays. Um, we, we're struggling with definition. People are defining their artworks too much. It's got to be about something very specific. Mm -hmm. Um, which is kind of uh, I, sometimes it doesn't help unless, of course, it's like this music for the glass menagerie where it forms part of something bigger. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. But now to get back to your question, um, I, I currently uh, lecture at LAMTA, the Leiting Alexander Musical Theatre Academy. That's um, at the Peter Turin Theatre. Yes, the theater that, new, the that new school that they built up there. Yes, yes. Wonderful. In the roof. Yes. Yeah. No, wonderful, wonderful teaching institution. And it's uh, I teach. Uh, sight singing there which is a kind of a practical extension of applied theory applied theory and then um uh, ear training you know, okay. training the ears which you call basic music literacy yes yes <laughs> That's like yeah. your titles of these things yeah <laughs> which is so important isn't it that these things are important to round an actor which i know anton and Dwayne are trying to do at that uh, complex so it makes them a rounded performer giving them the musical side as well definitely definitely it's it's a it's a wonderful skill and I think it's about time in South Africa that we start to make that the norm um, rather than the exception mm -hmm. that musical theater uh, actors and actresses have that ability to interact with the score other than just listening to the cast recording and copying because the, the people that they try to emulate, they've gone through the process of working with what the composer wrote down and then adding their interpretation on top. Whereas if you don't have the capabilities to work with the score, all you're doing is you're looking at the emulation and emulating that again. So it doesn't really grow from there. And that happens in classical music as well, doesn't it? Because although the score is there very clearly and distinctly what you should be doing, a lot of people copy yeah. one interpretation and don't think about it enough that, that's probably true yeah it's 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 good to it's good to go to the score and then listen to your you know you do learn through imitation as well um but having at least two or three sources is always a, a better yeah. better option than just going to copying so you you can listen to good interpretations or acknowledge their interpretations one or two of them and you can look at the score and in between that the, it's it's kind of the the things that catch your ear that you like that's all going to come together then in your version of it yeah no, that makes sense and you Yaku, do you get a chance to listen to much music i know classical music is important to you we've spoken about bach mm -hmm. influencing you um you spoke about benjamin britain influencing you so hugely and you said you did your master's thesis on Ravel, didn't yes, you? yes dissertation yes, yes. And do you do much listening to, uh, for relaxation, possibly, not for research? No, I actually do for, for relaxation. I do. It's very wide um, what I listen to. It varies quite a lot, and I go through phases of what I listen to. Um, I don't get out that much because, uh, you know, as a performer myself and somebody very, you know, active in the industry, I do have enough time, but I just have it at the wrong times so i can't <laughs> i can't go out and support the fellow fellow performers because i'm usually busy myself in the evenings um so yeah when i when i do listen to to music it's in the mornings and 
enjoy a wide variety of things. I liked your joke at the beginning before we came into the studio where you said um, you'd love to go and see the Cape Town Philharmonic more often, but if they played in the morning, yes, <laughs> you'd yes, be able exactly. to go. Yeah, yeah, I've been very, very bad with attending these concerts just because, yeah. Anyway, let's have another piece of music. All right, this is this is something a little bit different. It's a t- uh, tango suite by Piazzolla, the first movement uh, called the Siso, the, the, the designation of it, and it's played by uh, Sergio and Oder Assad, Egyptian brothers, so it's for guitar duo, classical guitar duo, and Piazzolla originally wrote this for the two brothers to play, and it's a wonderful, obviously with a Latin American, South American flavor and a lot of percussive um, playing on the guitar, wonderful piece.
Music by Piazzolla with two guitars there, the yeah. Egyptian brothers, Sergio and... Oder. Assad. Yeah, that's it. Well, another choice of my guest, Jaco Chrysal, the musician, the Cape Town-based musician and theater maker, and who's written the music for The Glass Menagerie by Tennessee Williams, the Abram St. Mayer production. And by the way, it's got quite a cast. Fiona Ramsey, Jenny Stead, Matthew Baldwin, and Marcel Mayer, directed by Fred Abramson, and the cellist is Natasha Otero. It is, I have to tell you, a fairly riveting two hours in the theatre, not only because of the acting, but because of your music, Jakob. Thank you, thank you. Which um, I still feel one day I would like to hear on its own. But <laughs> may I ask you, um, what? now this has been a long time, what are you going to do next? Do you have projects that you can share with us, or is it all secret? Uh, no, no, no. It's it's uh, there's some exciting things on its way. I'm I'm going um, into Rocky Horror rehearsals um, on Thursday. I'm their rehearsal pianist for their rehearsal period here in Cape Town, which is very um, uh, exciting. And then there's some other projects uh, with the Peter Turin Productions that I'm going to be involved with in the next couple of years, as in various capacities. Um, and then I've also got my own uh, theater production company, Tally Ho Productions, which I started this year. And we are opening our first show uh, in the Baxter Theater next year in March. Okay, called? Uh, the Last Five Years. It's a, a musical, uh, quite a famous musical. Okay, uh, okay. So that's something to watch out for. We'll yeah. talk to you about that, I dare say, Yaku. Interesting, you speak about Rocky Horror Show. Um, are you enjoying work on that? Because one thinks of that as such a cult piece that yeah. um, you sort of want it always to sound like the film. And, of course, it mustn't sound like the film. Yeah. Well, as, as a rehearsal pianist, my, my job is very defined, luckily. I just have to make sure that I can play that music as well as I possibly can. And it's it's fun music to play, the kind of rock and roll 50s, 60s style oh, of piano piece. playing. Yeah, it's it's exhausting to play because you're always busy. <laughs> but it's but I, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying working. Oh, I have enjoyed preparing it. Well, Jörg, it's been great talking to you. And um, congratulations on your achievement for the show, The uh, Glass Menagerie. It really is an integral part of the enjoyment of the experience in the theater. And uh, come back and talk to us again. But what is I'd your last piece? What are you going to um, walk okay. out the studio with? Uh, so, so seeing as we ended off with uh, musical theatre here, we're going to go with with a song, a very uh, from the musical "The Light in the Piazza." It's the the title number called "The Light in the Piazza," and the uh, musicals by um, Adam Gettle, who is the grandson of Richard Rogers. Oh, really? Um, so the family has some. Stakes there in the musical theatre <laughs> world. <laughs> Yaku, it's been great talking to you and all the best. And as I say, come and see us again. Yaku Crystal. Thank you so much. Thank you.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. Forever Plaid, the heavenly 1950s musical comedy is now on stage. Come experience the best music of the 1950s, including Catch a Falling Star, Three Coins in the Fountain, Love is a Many Splendored Thing, and many more, crooned beautifully by a quartet of handsome lads. Don't miss Forever Plaid at Peter Turin's Theater on the Bay from the 6th to the 23rd November. Book now through CompuTicket. 